I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right, buckle up, children. We are taking a trip. And where are we going? We are moving along a little bit, and we are landing in 16th century Spain. Ah, that great time of political upheaval, of religious upheaval, of reformation and counter-reformation. And yes, we are looking at an event that is somewhat connected to the Spanish Inquisition. Dun-dun-dun. Which, contrary to whatever Mel Brooks or Monty Python would tell you, was not exactly a fun time or a nice thing. And the reason I say mostly connected is there was a papal inquisition in the 15th century. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabel, or Isabel, Isabella, I don't know, I don't care. It's Isabella, right? Yeah, Ferdinand and Isabella, the ones who sent Columbus along the ocean blue in 1492 and all that good stuff. They tried to, well, they didn't try. They succeeded. Uh, they appointed Torquemada. They co-opted, sort of, the Papal Inquisition and made it a Spanish Inquisition to homogenize and, air quotes, purify Spain. Why? Well, if you know your world history just a little bit, and, and let's be honest, part of the reason for this podcast is, one, to get you to rejoice and celebrate with the martyrs of the past, but two is to have a fun way to look at a little bit of history that otherwise you may or may not have put together. Excuse <clears throat> If you know your history of Europe, you'll know that Islam spread rapidly in the 7th and 8th century and was on the verge of moving westward through um, through what would be now the Baltic region, region through the Baltic region, um, pushing into ancient Byzantium and across North Africa. And if you go across North Africa, where do you end up next as you keep moving along in habitable ground? Because you can't go south. If you keep moving north across North Africa and eventually get to the point, you end up moving across to the Iberian Peninsula, Portugal and Spain, everything south and west of the Pyrenean Mountains that separated from France. Well, there was a large Muslim population. They were pushing northward and were finally stopped by the ancestors of Charlemagne, I believe his father or his grandfather. I believe it's the grandfather, Charles Martel. Because old Charlemagne's father was Pepin the Short, if I'm not mistaken. So you can all double-check me on that. Don't quote me on any of it. But I believe it's Charles Martel, known as the Hammer, who stops the Muslim push northward at the Battle of Tours. But the Muslims never really leave Spain. So what you end up with, even seven, eight hundred years later, is you have a diverse population. Well, you add some Catholic monarchs. You add some distrust across Europe with Jewish bankers who have settled in Spain. And you start getting major counter-reformation vibes, and you start getting major Catholicizing vibes. So what happens is uh, lots of Muslims and Jews who were wedded to Spanish income and finances and power structures in general, air quotes, converted. The Spanish Inquisition was originally designed to test those conversions. Later on, because you're talking right now 1470s, 1480s, later on it would be used by monarchs to go after the Protestants. So that brings us to Philip II, who for a short period before his her death was actually married to uh, Mary, Bloody Mary of England, who, you know, ran on went on her own little run, and we'll talk about her one of these days eventually. 
Uh, Philip II marks the height of Spanish imperial power, as it were. He's a rich monarch because Spain is rich, because Spain has uh, colonies and mines across North, Central, and South America. And they are flooding the Spanish nation and empire now with gold and silver and precious things. He uh, has an alliance with the Habsburg family over there towards Austria and really half of Europe at this point. And he is devoutly Catholic. He is one of the ones who expands the Inquisition both throughout Spain and into one of their territories, which is Protestant Netherlands. So he goes after the Dutch. You've ever, if you've ever heard of the Council of Troubles, that comes out of this idea. He's got a heck of a hit list. Um, give me an idea. Uh, Bartolome Carranza was the Archbishop of Toledo. While he wasn't executed, he had spent 17 years in prison. After his death, he was acquitted of all charges. So you're asking, well, why did he spend 17 years in prison? Well, because he had written some pamphlets urging for calm and caution and patience with the reformers. And the uh, monarchy thought that was maybe a little bit too close to sympathy for the Protestants, so he had to go. <laughs> That's the type of people we're dealing with. That's the type of thing. Uh, between 1558 and 1562, there were about 100 to 120 air quotes Lutherans, which is pretty much what the Spanish called every Protestant, were Lutherans, that were executed during this time. The mayor of Antwerp in the Netherlands, Anthony von Strelen, was executed, as well as Jan von Kassenbrut, who was a Flemish poet, rather famous in his own day and in their day. So you see the problems moving about the continent, as it were. So who are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about Runkin. And I have no idea how to say her name. Runkin, Runkin, Vrunkin. I have no clue. Have fun looking it up. You tell me. Well, with this, excuse me, with this expansion of the Inquisition into the Netherlands, you what, what was really being driven was a an inspection of the nobility, so to speak. So the ruling classes, your mayors, your magistrates, your city treasurers, things like that. Because if you start losing them, you can lose a population very quickly. And there was already a revolt going on in the Netherlands for multiple reasons. One was religious, one was ethnic, one was territorial. So there's a lot of things going on here. Well, at one of these inspections, they found a Bible in the home of the mayor of Bruges. Now, of course, you know, find a Bible. You want to make sure you know what's going on because part of the Counter-Reformation is the suppression of Bible reading because that was a hallmark of Protestantism. Well, the whole household denies knowledge until they get to one of the maids named Runkin. Well, she claims to own the Bible. She says, yes, that's, that's my Bible. I, I, I read that. Well, the, the mayor, the owner of the home, tries to cover for her. says, no, 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 no. She doesn't read it. She just merely owns it. You know, we just she just has it. It's precious. Well, she denies that and claims, no, no, I actually, I actually read this puppy. So she's sentenced to death. <laughs> they weren't playing around. She's sentenced to death by suffocation. Now, why? Well, not why, but what? What is suffocation? The why is because they're crushing everything. They will make an example out of anyone that they can to ensure hegemonic control. That's what this is about. So what is death by suffocation? Well, they're going to go to the city wall. They're going to chisel out some of the bricks on the city wall about, you know, a little bit bigger than you. So think like the old westerns when the uh, the gunfighters are going off to their showdown at noon. And the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, oh, giving my throat giving me a hard time here. 
And as the uh, gunfighters are going out, you'll see the Undertaker of the Western run up with a string and kind of do the height and, and width thing so he can go make a casket quick because he just needs to make a casket barely bigger than the body. Well, that's what they would do with suffocation. They would carve out of the city wall some of the bricks about the size of the person, you know, just a little bit bigger so they could fit. After that section of bricks were carved out, you would then take the person and put them in this gap that you had just made, and you would then brick the gap back up. Now, what this would basically do is, is bricks are porous, mortar is a porous material, but it's not that porous, so you wouldn't starve to death in this. You would suffocate, basically. You'd be put into this little box in the city wall, and you'd eventually run out of oxygen rel relatively quickly. Now, they gave old Runkin here several opportunities. The first, as they began taking the bricks out of the wall, she remains faithful. They place her in the wall. They then begin the process of bricking up. I mean, odds are she's not a massive woman. I mean, she's a servant in the 16th century, but she's still probably pushing upper fours, five feet tall at the minimum. It's going to take a minute to, you know, brick that in. So as they start bricking, they give her another opportunity. Just look, repent, apologize, say you were sorry, and we'll stop, and this will all be a big misunderstanding. We'll brick up the hole without you in it, and we'll call it a day. She remains faithful. Before they place the final brick, so I want you to process this. They have every brick but the one over her face. And they give her the opportunity to recant, to repent, to forsake scripture reading, and to listen to the good church that everybody knows you're supposed to be paying attention to. She refuses. They place the brick. Years later, they go in there and actually remove her, uh, her bones and actually bury her in the cemetery. Ah, dude. I don't know if I got that in me, but once again, I'm not standing there in the wall. She had that because she had the Holy Spirit. And by the way, because this is a little bit more modern, we have quotes. So when told that, you know, she was too pretty and too young to have to suffer this indignity and she should just recant and she would be allowed to live, her answer, my Savior died for me. I will also die for him. Her response before they placed the last brick, oh, Lord, forgive my murderers, dude. When told that, you know, it was one thing to own the Bible, it was another thing to read it. Just tell us you're not reading it. This book is mine. I am reading from it, and it is more precious to me than anything. That's an understanding of who God is, what he has done for his people, and how he calls for them to live in this world. We get a heritage from a bloody and messy world, but Christian, it is a blessy, blessy, a bloody and messy world that we live in, redeemed by Christ, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, knowing that there is coming a day when the messiness and the bloodiness of this place will be undone and his good kingdom will reign. Persevere to that good kingdom. And until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.